Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to another episode of the Ezra Klein Show from Vox.com and Panoply. I am, you know, come on, you, you heard the show title. But I've got a really exciting discussion today. I got a chance to sit down with Bill Gates. I think he's one of the people who really needs no introduction. But in case he does, for you, he is the founder of Microsoft, man who changed personal computing, the force behind it, both financially and, and conceptually, the Gates Foundation, which is the largest and most important foundation in the world. We talk in this interview about something he's been thinking a lot about this year. How do we create breakthrough innovations in clean energy? How are we going to power the world? His annual letter on behalf of his foundation is on this subject, and, and he really talks there in some detail about the dual problem we have. On the one hand, there are a tremendous number of people in developing countries, including seven in 10 in sub-Saharan Africa, who don't even have electricity. And on the other hand, we have a terrible problem with greenhouse gas emissions. We're, we're warming our planet. We're, we're facing a serious climate problem in the coming decades. We talk a lot about his optimism around a technological breakthrough. And we discuss more broadly what is happening across a, a wide variety of technological frontiers. He's sort of a polymath, I think it's fair to say, and, and has some pretty deep knowledge of machine learning, of material science, of medical breakthroughs. I've been really fascinated by this debate that has taken hold recently about whether technological innovation is actually slowing down across the world. He is very much on the other side of that argument and, and explains why. I get his book recommendations, his argument for why America is still the, the most imaginative country in the world. I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot, and frankly, I left it just a little bit more optimistic about where we're going. So I hope you enjoy it too. Please rate the show on, on iTunes or wherever your fine podcasts are downloaded. Please tell your friends about it. You can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And with that, here is Bill Gates. You, you were a Superman fan growing up? Yeah, I read everything, but I started with DC. What is your favorite comic? Well, the Superman stuff was the stuff I read when I was young. Then when you get into you know, the League of Superheroes and all the, the unusual superpowers, the idea that a single superpower lets you, like, you know, just being the Flash or just being the Hulk, that's kind of interesting versus the, the you know, Superman who's got it all or Batman who essentially has none. All that variety was fascinating. Yeah, I've enjoyed in, in recent years, they've begun with Superman trying to figure out what would happen if he went bad. There's a great continuity called Red Sun, which is what if Superman was born in communist Russia or landed in communist Russia and sort of became a uh, totalitarian leader of a super state. <laughs> well, thank God for kryptonite. Exactly. Well, why don't we begin with the big prediction in the letter. You write that within 15 years, I expect the world will discover a clean energy breakthrough that will save our planet and power the world. And I'd like to start by defining 
a breakthrough here? What what kind of invention would count as a fulfillment of your prediction? Well, one that would be pretty miraculous is being able to take sunlight and directly make oil or gasoline from it. That one's pretty phenomenal if you can do it economically because unlike wind or uh, solar electric, which are intermittent and are extremely expensive to store with any foreseeable technology, there the idea of taking a liquid hydrocarbon and storing it in a tank, moving it in a pipeline, you know, we have that infrastructure and so it, it fits right in. So that what's called solar fuels is one path. Now, it's not certain enough that we should put all our money on that path, but that would change the rules of the game quite dramatically. So, so the reason I ask that, and, and it's helpful, I think, to have solar fuels as, as a baseline in this conversation, is that we have a lot of technologies that, in, in theory, could power the world, but building the infrastructure necessary to scale them to that level is really difficult and, at this point, sort of cost-ineffective. So your paper, it, it, it frames the problem, I think, as essentially an issue of technology and technological innovation. But it often seems that the problem of energy is more of commercialization, of deployment, of political will. A, a great electric car has to be unbelievably incredible to compete with the fact that there's a gasoline station every 50 feet. So is this really a question of innovation or is it a question of somehow unwinding a sort of infrastructure and political path dependence that we've been on now for you know at least a century? The most paradigmatic way to look at it is to consider the trade-off India has to make. Today, because women have to gather firewood and they're burning that in their stove, you know, they get respiratory disease, they don't have lighting at night. The lack of electrification in poor countries, including most people in sub-Saharan Africa, is destroying their lives. And so when you say to India, hey, don't use your coal, use something that is substantially more expensive, you're asking them to make a trade-off against uplifting those lives to have the things that we take for granted, where if they do it with coal, they still will have emitted less per person by factor four than we have over the last hundred years. So when you really look at it that way, if you don't have innovation, you're not going to meet any climate goal that's out there. Today's technologies in terms of reliable delivered energy are at a huge premium. And all the nice tax subsidization we're doing, people shouldn't lose sight of the fact that until you have a storage solution and until you get economic, asking India on behalf of the rich world that, that's done so much CO2 emission to hold back electrification, that's not likely to happen. One of the things I think is, is interesting and morally really difficult about this topic is that there are two goals here, and to some degree they're a little bit in tension, which is you talk in your letter about how 7 in 10 people in sub-Saharan Africa live without electricity. And there's one argument that says simply on a pure question of human uplift, our top priority should be getting to them, getting to people in rural China, in rural India, power as quickly as possible, sort of no matter what it's made out of, including coal. And then there was this question of the broader climate issue, where if we were, you know, thankfully able to bring the human race up to a, a higher level of, of economic development everywhere, but it was doing so using the same kind of fossil fuels that power the development of places like the United States, we would fundamentally cook the planet. 
How do you think about managing that? I mean, in the places where barring a tremendous breakthrough, that is a real trade-off. That is something that actually has to be answered in one direction or another. Well, for very poor countries, they should be unconstrained in terms of how they electrify, because that, if you just say sub-Saharan Africa, that won't be more than 3% of global emissions. Unfortunately, India is big enough and what's called lower middle income that unless we can make it attractive to them to achieve both goals, they're probably going to choose to go for electrification and, and not continue to increase their CO2 emissions. And then you know, we'll run the experiment of heating up the planet to that degree and what that does to overall climate and ecosystems. So if you really tell me I don't get innovation, then I can't say to you that I'm optimistic that we'll solve climate change. Because of innovation, I am quite optimistic. Now, we should tilt the odds in our favor as much as we can by increasing the R&D, both government in the basic research category and private investors on the sort of high-risk new energy, breakthrough energy company side of things, because that, you know, that'll accelerate getting these new things. You know, science has given us a lot of breakthroughs, and, you know, people shouldn't underestimate once you get serious about something like this, the number of paths there are to go down. Solar chemicals, just one of about a dozen different ways there could be a solution that would serve both goals, that is cheaper energy and clean and reliable. Well, let me ask you a bit about what makes you optimistic here about innovation. Can you give me a historical analog for a problem similar or an innovation similar that that has this much infrastructure, this much human life built upon it, and yet an innovation done in that sector was able to roll out globally or even semi-globally at the kind of speed we would need it to do to really make a dent in our carbon emissions in time. Because, I mean, once the carbon is out there in the atmosphere, it's very hard to get it out. To my knowledge, it's not really... There's a lot of pie-in-the-sky ideas about that, but nothing really persuasive. So if we invent the future here in 2150, it may, in order to prevent you know pretty catastrophic levels of climate change, already be too late. That's right. You can't wait till 2150 to, to have an invention. You really need an invention sometime in the next 10 to 20 years and then scale that up and make it a significant part of the energy system over the next 20 years after that. The rich countries have to get to near zero because through land use and livestock and what you'll allow the poor countries to continue to do, if you're going to get to the 2100 goal, the rich countries by 2050 have to be very, very near zero. And that's why I go through the equation because some people think, well, you know, a little bit of efficiency here or there or a little bit less consumption here or there somehow makes that equation work, which it doesn't. You know, an example is that in the early 1900s, New York City was buried in, in horse manure. And, you know, people said, okay, should we let the horses only go out on odd and even days? And, you know, they had barns and whips and saddles and people were trained. And, you know, there was a huge infrastructure. That problem, you know, turned out was solved by the automobile, which, of course, you know, brought us some portion of the the challenge that we're dealing with today. But that type of shift happens, just like shale oil happened, just like nuclear energy happened. 
Now, people like Schmiel will remind us historically these things have been 50-year transition periods. Here, the world is a lot richer than ever in the past. We've got this imperative, but it does set a high bar for how good the new technology has to be. Do you want to walk through, you mentioned here the the equation. So for listeners of this podcast, do you want to walk through that equation? I think it's an interesting way to think about it, both in terms of breaking down the problem, but also how revolutionary the solution would need to be. Yeah, it's important for people who care about climate to not think it's easy to solve. Uh, So the equation is how many people are there, and that's P, which today is about 7 billion and will grow to be bigger than 9 billion. Then you take how many energy-related services each person takes advantage of. That's heating, cooling, transport, lighting, call that S, and that will go up quite a bit as poor people in India are are getting lighting, air conditioning, refrigeration, things that we take for granted. And there's a lot of that. So that will go up. The average number of services used by a person will increase, and it should. That's a very good thing. Then you have the energy used per service. And so in some areas, like lighting, that number can go down a lot. And some, like transport, planes, making fertilizer, those processes are extremely optimized, and so there's not that much room to innovate on the energy per service front. And so even if you're optimistic about that, that one will, on balance across all services, maybe you'll get to 0.6, that is 40% more efficient across all services. And so if we take these first three factors, you know, 7 billion going to 9 billion, double the services per person and you know efficiency at about 0.6, that's increasing. And the last factor is the carbon per unit of energy. And so if you multiply today, you get 36 billion tons. And if you multiply in the future, you need to get zero. You know, the first three factors, first one's going up, the second one hopefully is going up, and the third one is going down, but not enough to ups- offset those other two. So you Unless you take C and do something dramatically, that is greenhouse gas, or we say CO2, but broadly all greenhouse gases, per unit of energy used, unless you perform a miracle there, you could be at a number bigger than $36 And so you really have to take not just part of the energy system and make it renewable. You have to take transport, industry, household, electricity, and at least all of that in the middle-income and rich countries and put it into a, a zero-emission mode. So so I think that's a really good frame set because it shows it, that this is really big. And something your sort of technological optimism here raises is this argument that you hear now, you hear it from people like venture capitalist Peter Thiel or economist Robert Gordon, that the fundamental rate of technological innovation in our society has, has really slowed down compared to the mid-20th century. They would say we're seeing... Big innovations in IT, but in things like energy, transportation, medical care, and so on, the rate of, of technological innovation has slowed. And certainly Gordon thinks that's because the next set of breakthroughs are just not nearly as easy to make. Do you disagree with that argument? Totally. Yeah. I couldn't disagree more. The advance of science in terms of the basic understandings we have today and what that allows to do in material science, medicine, energy, and continued IT advances is even more profound than in the past. It's fair to say, as my favorite energy author writes, that 
in the 1880s, we really did some big things. And then in the 1930s, we did some big things. So radio, TV, automobile. The medical advances, you just have to be blind not to see that we're making more advance there than ever before. Energy tends to come in big chunks. So you get coal, you get natural gas, you get nuclear. Material science, for the first time, we understand alloys, we understand catalysts, we can simulate those things. And a company like TerraPower, which happens to be a nuclear fission company, is able to create a fourth-generation design and actually see what happens during a Richter 10 earthquake or a volcano or tidal wave in a way that the designs that are deployed today, they had no idea what would happen to Fukushima when that wave came in. So it really is amazing the number of engineers in the world, the tools those engineers have, our basic understanding about you know, solids and alloys and things like that. I'm amazed that somebody can can miss that. So, so let me ask about why, because I think this is such an interesting and such an important debate. Is your view here that we have, for the past, say, however long, 20 or 30 years, been doing really fundamental, important, basic research, and we're now at the point where that's going to pay off? Because I think the skeptics here, they say, well, look, we are not seeing life expectancy increases in the developed world, anything like what we saw in the 20th century. We don't move people faster now than we did 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. In some ways, with the the ending of the Concord, we, we move them slower. That there's a lot of exciting conceptual work you read about all the time, you know, sequencing the genome, gene therapy, all this sort of cool materials research. And yet, the sort of big leaps forward, we just keep kind of not seeing. And even in terms of, of drugs, I follow this stuff a, a bit, and I know that there's a, a real question in the pharmaceutical industry about why the rate of blockbuster breakthroughs and genuinely new molecules has, has slowed, and we're seeing a total diminution in the number of effective antibiotics we have. So tell, tell me a little bit more about why you're optimistic there, because I do think it is a, it's a little bit of a counterintuitive view. Well, take something like agricultural productivity. The private sector builds better hybrid maize seeds every year, and we've had 2% compounded growth, which is a pretty phenomenal thing. And that's you know one of the most basic processes you can imagine. That's just pure seed productivity. Now, with better weather prediction, better automation, you know, understanding exactly how much fertilizer to put in each place, that's a yielded benefit on top of what the basic seed improvement is giving us. And that's why 2% of the population is makes us the biggest agriculture exporter in the world, in, in addition to feeding the people. When you improve things like education through digital tools or scientists sharing information through digital tools or you know, buyers and sellers being matched through digital tools, utilization of, of resources through digital tools, things like Airbnb or ride services. Those are very fundamental things in terms of your efficiency. And yes, in terms of the very big medical breakthroughs on cancer, you know, I can't say is that in the next 10 years or in the next 20 years, but it will come because of the understanding we've gained. You know, under five mortality went in 1990 from 10% of all kids over 12 million a year to under 6 million a year. You know, literacy, you know, has skyrocketed. Abject poverty was more than cut in half. So it is true that the very rich, what they're experiencing in terms of how they select and share music, how they select and share photos, how they know where to drive to or 
hotels to pick or staying in touch with friends, those things aren't the way the productivity figures are done, aren't very good at capturing those quality of service type improvements. But ask somebody, you know, ask somebody who's gay or ask somebody who uses a really cool service to stay in touch with people far away, you know, would they want to go back 10 years or 20 years? I don't think so. I think the way that we spend our time has changed as much in this time period as any time period. And people like Gordon still are talking about material-based stuff, which for the poor still is their big thing, and that's why energy advance is such a big thing for them. But just measuring the speed that I move at doesn't capture what's gone on in terms of how you access information, how you're able to collaborate with people, how you engage in the marketplace. One of the fascinating things I think about the the productivity number debate, which you, you referenced here, I think is really fascinating about why does it feel like technology has changed so much, but we don't see it in, in the numbers that, that we would think would reflect it. You know, something that economists who studies that told me, and, and it helped change my thinking about it, I'd just be curious what you think of this, is that it's always been the case that the productivity numbers miss things. They miss better ways we spend our time. It's hard for them to measure new products. They certainly don't measure my nephew's smile and what that means to me. They have always missed that. And so the question would be then, is there some reason to believe they're missing more of it now than ever? Is there some reason to believe the difference between being alive in 2015 versus 1995 is way bigger than it was from 1995 to 1975? And I think that the argument of Gordon and others is that as much as this stuff has felt very big, that if you walked into somebody's house, more is recognizable now from 30 or 40 years ago than it was 30 or 40 years back when we were looking at things in many cases to go in some ways back to our main topic here, like electrification. That's a, he's, he's so wrong about that. I mean, you know, you used to have an encyclopedia on the shelf. You used to have all your albums on the shelf. I mean, does he really think nothing's changing? You used to have, what, three networks that you used to watch? Binge watching, it's a new invention. Part of the reason that you miss it in the statistics now is that if something enters the economy at a non-continuous price, then understanding the substitution demand curve for that good just doesn't happen. Let's say Wikipedia had come in at $100, then 90 then 80 70 60 50 like that. And you could see, okay, people are switching from Britannica and World Book to this thing. Now they've switched to this thing and look... They're paying this amount, and that price is going down. The way the time series would have happened would have been utterly different because you would have seen the substitute demand from the narrow set of buyers and and gotten a sense for that that substitute value. When things come into the economy at, at free prices, like the way you manage your hobby, the way that markets clear where you find restaurants and hotels in different ways, you don't see that at all something like the sharing economy, you actually see that as a negative because people are building less capital assets even though you're using them more effectively. So yes, there are some systemic things about the way economists measure things, but more importantly, the big benefit of the scientific understanding of the last 20 years in terms of gene editing, biology, machine learning, antibody design, material understanding... We will see the dramatic effects of those things over the next 20 years. And I'll say that with incredible confidence. We have laid the foundation that actually, in terms of, you know, like agricultural productivity, what gene editing means for that done properly is is very, very 
dramatic. What new material science means for how you build things, how long it lasts. You know, everybody's talking about re-maintaining infrastructure. You know, we're going to be able to build infrastructure that lasts 10 times as long as the sort of cement rebar approach that we've had today. And we'll be looking at the, to some degree, the supply side magic of, of machine learning, vision, and robotics. So I promise you that book will be viewed as quite ironic. You know, it's like <laughs> the Peace Breaks Out book that was written in 1940. It, it will be turn out to be that prophetic. You know, your your comments remind me of that William Gibson line that the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. So as someone who I think lives more in, in the future than most of us, can you tell me about something you've seen recently that, that really blew your mind and you think in 30 or 40 or 50 years will have, will have changed everything? Well, I went to see a, a robotic surgery company and the idea that these tiny little instruments that are so small you could never directly manipulate them and the kind of multi-wavelength, including visual acquisition, to go, you know, take like kidney stones. A human surgeon, that's a very difficult thing to go up, you know, do the ablation. This robot, because of the magic of software, vision, and they, you know, they still, you know, sort of like a a Google self-driving car, they still are going to have a doctor sit there watching to make sure it isn't going the wrong way. But you know, the human hands just aren't that good at those tiny little movements. And seeing things, small passageways where these really rich sensors explain how to do these things, you know, robotic surgery is just one minor thing, but it's it's absolutely mind-blowing to think that much better surgery without somebody who's unusual because they've been picked for their, their hand manipulation, that'll be standard surgery practice, will be robotic surgery at some period of time, and also in terms of the costs involved, it's a very big deal. That's not even extra credit. That is a clear thing that will happen. I know you're. I know you take, um, as a lot of people who understand this subject well do, the risk of creating artificial intelligence that that fundamentally ends up turning against us pretty seriously. I'm curious where you think we are in terms of building unartificial intelligence. I know there's a lot of disagreement in the field about. Are we 40 years away? Are we 500 years away? What do you think is the state of, of AI research right now? And, and, and when do you think it is really going to begin feeding back into, into the economy and, and into innovation? Well, with robotics, you have to think of three different milestones. One is just pure, not highly trained labor substitution. So driving, security guard, warehouse work, waiter, maid, things that are largely visual and physical manipulation, factory line type activities. That threshold, I don't think you'd get much disagreement that over the next 15 years that the robotic equivalents in terms of cost, reliability, will become a substitute to those activities. So that's the first stage and you'd get less variance in prediction. Then there's the point at which what we think of as intelligent activities like writing contracts or doing diagnosis or writing software code. When will the computer start to infringe and, or infringe is a a pejorative word, start to uh, have the capacity to work in those areas? There you'd get more disagreement, but most people would say, okay, that that will happen in a time frame. Some would say 30 years, I'd be 
there, and some might say 60 years. Some might not even see that. Then you have the this sort of third threshold where the intelligence involved is dramatically better than humanity as a whole. I mean, what Bostrom called a superintelligence. And there you're going to get a huge range of views, including people who say it won't ever happen. Ray Kurzweil says it will happen at midnight on July 13, 2045, or something like that, <laughs> and that it'll all be good. Then you have other people who say it can never happen. Then you have, there's a group that I'm more among saying, okay, we don't really, we're not able to predict it, but it's something that people should start thinking about. We shouldn't restrict activities or slow things down. You know, the potential that that exists, even in a 50-year time frame, means it's, it's something to be taken seriously. But those are different thresholds. And the responses are, are different. Something you talk a lot about in your letter is the need to try genuinely wild, crazy ideas, ideas that, that, that might just fail. Do you think our culture or our educational system undermines that kind of creativity and risk-taking? Well, certainly the U.S. is probably the best at having risk capital and risk-taking activities. The mixture of our universities, our national labs, our venture capitalists, the fact that smart people from all over the world, to the degree we allow them, want to come and join in these activities. This is the place where, on all the fronts we've been talking about, energy, biology, IT, robotics, you name it, the U.S. has an amazing share, not 100% share, but over 50% share in almost all these areas. And I've been impressed how long that's been maintained where a lot of the, the key elements, the strong universities, the willingness to take risk, those things haven't been kept secret. And so although the overall U.S. education system has severe failings for low-income people, for the people who get a good education in the U.S. and get to go to one of the top, say, 50 to 100 universities, the amount of creativity, the willingness to take risk, the you know, it's the envy of the world. And yes, China is imitating some of those things, but you know, it takes thirty or forty years and you know, we'll see how, how far they they get. Of course their innovation improvement just adds to what I discussed about my view that there's a lot of innovation net, even with ninety to ninety five percent being dead ends. My sense of one of the arguments for optimism here, particularly around the, these big technological breakthroughs, is that even if you think technological breakthroughs have become harder to come by, that the number of people looking for them now, the number of people in countries that have you know, serious higher education systems that, that are able to provide the risk capital, the, the underlying technology, and so on to do this kind of research and, and discovery, it's just orders of magnitude bigger than it's been at, at, at pretty much any time in human history. You know, machine learning is a pretty fundamental thing. Genetic manipulation is a pretty fundamental thing. Those are foundational advances that will be ranked with the semiconductor chip as enabling elements of stuff that's very dramatic. Material science is one that I like because it's so far off the beaten path, and yet for many of these energy breakthroughs, the idea is how you make materials last a long time, have extra tensile strength, have better magnetic properties, catalysts that can take, say, wood and make gasoline from it. We are right on the verge of being able to do 
rational design, that is, use simulations to figure out exactly which chemicals will have which properties. That's really a fundamental thing. Almost all of material science has been basically messing around. Which alloy is going to have which properties? Well, throw a little chrome in, throw a little nickel in, you know, see what the heck happens. That stuff is is moving towards, and just like shape space and drugs, which is another uh, breakthrough I love, which is it's always been kind of messing around with the organic chemistry instead of really understanding, okay, let's model chemical changes I should have in this bond and you know, I'll come up with the drug that has the absolute best affinity. So we're going from tinkering to explicit design in a lot of fundamental science areas. Well, I, I think material science is something people don't hear about that often. So could I get you to talk about just something you've seen there that you think is really going to be transformative, something specific that, that people get a sense of how that, that is changing? We don't use that many materials in large volume. We use plastic, wood... And the big ones are cement, including rebar-reinforced cement, and steel, either in that rebar or separately. As you can get things like carbon fiber materials that are not only have better tensile strength than even the best steels we've ever made, but they can be done economically, that's a, a really huge thing. Now, you see it first in extremely high-value applications. So it starts in military craft. It's moved now to commercial aircraft. It's moving a tiny bit into automotive uh, sector. So we need about another factor of four reduction in the cost of making carbon fiber materials. And I think if you ask people in the field, you know, you'd get views anywhere from 10 to 15 years. And the cost of making steel has been a little bit on a, a flat curve. And so if any material that's that's improving its cost dramatically has a chance of, of catching that. One thing that you talk about in the letter is that government has a really important role in funding some of these basic innovations. And and that, that seems true to me if you look at the history of these big innovations. But, but one version of how you'd want to see that happen potentially is that government would be funding things that are big ideas that are likely to fail because it's these kind of big, weird ideas that may not pan out that are where the market is likely to fall short in terms of directing capital. But then you have something like Solyndra, where the government funds something that doesn't work out, and it becomes a huge public relations scandal, and, and, and people feel that the taxpayer money is being misspent. Every year, there are, are members of Congress who will put out these awards for the most ridiculous uses of government money, where they kind of make fun of research projects that just sound funny when you write them down. Do you think there's a tension between the role government should be playing and the role taxpayers are comfortable with it playing in terms of its funding of basic research and science? Well, basic research, fortunately, has got quite broad support, and it has success stories like the Internet that are pretty fundamental. People can argue about shale gas, what the relative role of the private sector versus the government was, but certainly in terms of some of the those advances, uh, there was government research money, nuclear the government played such a strong role. It was amazing. What's being discussed today is an increase at the basic research level. And so you may never get a consensus about cheap loans once you get into that deployment phase, which is why I really do expect the private sector, including the group I'm pulling together in the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, we should step up for the risky part of that because I don't think you can count on government to get into that piece. People can have... A, 
a long debate about that. But the piece that where the U.S. is phenomenal is what we've got in our universities and our national labs, and those programs are underfunded. And over a five-year period, the doubling, which the executive branch has you know, said they'll do their best to make happen, and 2016 budget was the first time in 15 years where we saw, in that case, a 15% increase over something that had been flat for that entire time period. If you stick to the basic research part, if you really show them how it'll be well spent and have spin-off benefits into non-energy areas, and it you know, provides great jobs, improves American competitiveness, in the specific discussions I've had with, with people in the Congress, the only challenge I get is that the budget in general is so tight. The view that this is the part of the energy policy that you could get broad agreement on, I'm not getting much pushback on that. Now, you know, when it comes to, to funding different things, we'll see if we can get that doubling. But the U.S. has been the most generous on basic research, primarily in the medical area, and the benefits to us in terms of advancing the science in companies and jobs that have come out of that has been pretty incredible. So, you know, we don't need to push the boundaries in terms of the commercialization piece in order to get what we need. So let me ask you a, a sort of disconnected question here. I know you're a very big reader, legendarily. What is the book you would recommend to somebody who's 15 years old, to somebody who's 25 years old, and then to somebody who's 45 years old, and why? Well, the book I've recommended the most ever since I've read it is Better Angels of Our Nature. It's a tough one because it's longer than a ravage book. It's about 700 pages, and so quite a bit that you have to read there. But I don't think that would vary by age. I guess it would be a pretty intense 15-year-old would go and read that. Then again, a lot of people read less as, as they, <laughs> they get older, which is, is too bad. What is Better Na- Angels of Our Nature about? It's about how humans have treated humans over time. And, you know, whatever happened to duels and witchcraft and slavery and, and feuds and why are those things gone? It educates you about instruments of torture and how demand for those things seems to have fallen off. Anyway, it's a, it's a pretty profound thing that looks at the rate of violence over history. And then Pinker actually tries to look into it. Why have we been able to achieve that? You know, why, you know, when you're dealing with lots of strangers has the violent death rate come down so dramatically? What is it about morals, taboos, systems of laws? And he looks at even shifts in attitudes towards violence you know, over the last 50 years. So it's, it's a pretty amazing piece of work. But I don't know how many of the people I recommend it to end up reading it. <laughs> and then, so then if it's not going to be by age, what are two other books you've read in the last couple of years that you would recommend to an interested audience? I had had a while where I hadn't read science fiction. And so a friend said, no, you got to read some of the latest Neil Stevenson stuff. So I read this Seven Eves, which uh, also is not short, but because science fiction, probably people read it pretty quickly. But anyway, that's very clever, you know, gets you to think about all sorts of situations, including what will happen with technology or anyway, it's a very, very clever book. Now, I have to read his other ones. I, I don't know how it compares to his other ones. People say, you know, they're all really good. Oh, this is the one that the most people said that I should come back and, and read. And the final one, the final book? You know, my wife just gave me this book. I've, I've just finished reading Sapiens, which is pretty good. I've been reading Sapiens. Uh, it's really but, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't agree with all of it, but it's, it's a really powerful framework. So I, I think I'll end up 
recommending that one pretty high. My wife just gave me one called Getting Younger Every Year, which there's actually a version for men and a version for women. So I've I committed to her that that's the next one I'll read, which is kind of about diet and exercise and taking care of yourself type stuff. Well, if you are able to figure out how to get younger every year, I think that would be really significant proof that we've made some big technological breakthroughs. And, I, and I'd love to hear how you've done it. But Bill Gates, thank you so much for taking the time uh, here with us today. I've, I've really appreciated it. It's been really, really helpful, really informative. All right. Great. Great to talk to you. That was Bill Gates. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I would second that recommendation for Sapiens. I've been reading it. I'm also not sure I agree with all of it, but it is among the most provocative books I have read in a really long time. It's a really interesting piece of work. So thank you to to Bill Gates and, and his team for setting this up. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. This is a co-production of Vox.com and Panoply. And thank you, of course, to you, the listener. If you want more hot podcast action from me, you can always check out my other podcast, The Weeds, where I talk policy every week with my colleagues Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. Please rate this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with who you'd like to see on the show or, or what you'd like to see changed on the show. And I'll be back next week.